0: I don't know if uh, you grew up going to church like I did. Um, but we always talked about Samson a whole lot. And I loved the story of Samson because he was strong and buff, and he had long hair, which that was, you know, breaking gender norms for me at the time. But he was like this like cool guy in the Bible. And we would, you know, do Samson coloring sheets and talk about Samson. is so great that he uh, was strong. And then you read the story of Samson, and you're like, well, you know, he was strong. And he did all this other stuff, but, you know, it's cool because he was strong. My picture of the book of Judges is kind of the Sunday school, like, it's cool that this guy was really strong. That's what I grew up with, right? And I saw this book as, oh, cool, there's like these heroes that we get to look at. He knocked down the the pillars and the Temple of the Philistines. Like, Samson is a cool guy. The problem is that's not what the Book of Judges is about. The Book of Judges isn't about how cool Samson is, or how you know immaculate his hair is, or about getting unsuspected haircuts. The book of Judges is actually a lot more difficult to talk about than I was led on in Sunday school growing up. The book of Judges, like we saw in the video, is a book that shows us the depth of how humans are affected by sin. It shows us the failing that the people of God have had to live into the kind of life that God has wanted for them. It shows God's people going from being this example of, we're going to be a light to the nations, to actually reflecting more the nations around them and their morality and way of life and their worship. But what we do see in Judges, in the midst of all of that, is the faithfulness God has to his people in the midst of their failing, in the midst of their running away, in the midst of their human sin. This morning as we kind of dive into Judges, which will be a nine-week series that we walk through the book of Judges, um, this is going to be kind of an introduction week. This is kind of setting us up for success over the coming weeks as we work through Judges. And uh, we are doing a weekly Bible study along with this where you can join in in a small group to be part of that. Uh, And we have several different groups and options for that across our three sites. We have two here in Montague. I'll be leading an online Zoom uh, study on Monday nights, and then we'll have on Tuesday nights here in person uh, a group as well that'll be working through that study. So I encourage you... Be part of this series, both in you know Sunday mornings, listening to the sermons and, and working through judges as we preach through it, but also to grab a study guide on your way out or download one from our website, and to be reading through judges with us, to be working through those questions, getting involved in a group so that we're not just hearing you know a half hour about judges on Sunday mornings, but we're allowing this text, we're allowing God's words spoken to us through uh, His scriptures to shape us. In many different ways throughout these next nine weeks. So let's dive into Judges. What is the book of Judges? Well, the book of Judges takes place in this time in Israel's history at the tail end of what we call the conquest of Canaan. Now, let's let's kind of go back and we'll, we'll lead up to there. We talked a lot over Christmas time, around Advent, about God's promise to Abraham, right? That God picked Abraham out of obscurity and he said, you will have uh, so many descendants, it will be as many as there are stars in the sky or sand in the seashore. And your descendants are going to bless all the nations of the world. And he promised that I will give to your descendants the land that you're standing on, the land of Canaan. At that time, Abraham was just kind of a nomad wandering around following what, where God was leading him. And he said, Your home is going to be this land at some point for your descendants. And so generations pass, and God's people, they move down to Egypt. You remember they get enslaved. They're slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years before God uh, sends Moses and delivers them. There's the plagues, there's the parting of the Red Sea, they get out into the wilderness. And God is going to lead them into this promised land that he promised to Abraham. The problem is, is once they get to the border of the promised land, they send in some spies and the spies are like, there's giants there. The land is awesome. Like, we could farm that to the nines, but there's giants. The people are scary. I don't think we can handle it. Like, we're not a trained army. And God, he, he punishes them for their, their lack of faith in his provision for them. And he says, well, okay, this generation is going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They're going to die off. And then the next generation is going to have the opportunity to come into the promised land. So that happens. The next generation comes and Moses dies off and a man named Joshua succeeds him. And he leads God's people into the promised land, they cross over the Jordan River, and they begin a military campaign where they start taking over towns, they start driving out the Canaanites from the land, they kill a whole bunch of people. And I think that leads me to a bit of my own difficulty with this time in Israel's history, this this book of Judges and the book of Joshua that leads up to it, is like I'm struggling a bit personally with the morality of it all, if I'm honest. To, to, to have this God who apparently, you know, in his Ten Commandments that he gives them in the wilderness, thou shalt not kill, and at the same hand he's, he's telling them to go into the promised land and to slaughter villages of people. To go and take it over and to put people to the sword. This seems, for many of us, like this deep contradiction. And I, and I think we probably should wrestle through this. To not just blanket it all and be like, oh, it's in the Bible, so it's, it's happy stuff. I think if we've learned anything over the last few months, it's that the Bible contains a lot of difficult passages that are very hard to teach in Sunday school. But I also think we need to acknowledge that the story of Joshua and Judges, this conquest of Canaan, the taking over the land, the driving out of the people, the slaughtering of men, women, and children in these villages has been used throughout history as a justification for horrendous violence. In the way that there's been genocide of indigenous peoples around the globe by quote-unquote Christian empires, who have looked at Joshua and Judges and said, God tells them to drive the people out of the land and to kill people, so we're doing it because, you know, we go to church, so we're on God's side. We need to understand that this is not God's intention for His people to be following on a regular basis. The book of Judges we'll read is, I'm going to call it descriptive, not prescriptive that it is telling us what God had in place for this particular time for this people in this conquest of the land of Canaan and settling in there. It is not a prescriptive book that is saying you need to go into the towns around you and slaughter a bunch of people and drive out the inhabitants. It's not what the book is about. And the minute we take it there, we're deviating deeply from what we know to be Christ's direct and clear teaching to us about how we're to live in following him. So why did God send his people into the land? Why did he tell them to drive out the Canaanites? Why did he tell them to, to take certain cities and just completely flatten them and let nothing be alive inside afterwards? It's difficult to wrestle through, and I think there are some decent answers, but it is one of those things that we're always going to have to hold in tension and in difficulty. But I want to point you to some of the words that that God speaks to Abraham when he says that your descendants will inherit the land of Canaan. In Genesis 15, verse 16, this is in the midst of like, I'm telling you what's going to happen. This land is going to be yours. Your people are going to go to Egypt and be slaves. I'm going to set them free. And then they're going to move to the promised land. Abraham says this, or God says this to Abraham in Genesis fifteen sixteen. I have this up on the screen. He says, After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sin of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. Now, this passage is kind of strange to me. Maybe you've read it in translations. The sins of the Amorites uh, have not yet... Um, Been fulfilled or completed. The Amorites is kind of a generic term here for all the inhabitants of the promised land, the land of Canaan. The Canaanites are another word for it. There's the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Anakites, all of these groups, right, that are inhabitants of the promised land. But God says that you're going to come here in four generations' time from from a certain moment, and He said, you're going to drive them out, but not right now, because their sin does not yet warrant their destruction. What we see here is God saying, these people are living in horrendous ways. And we'll look into some specifics in a minute. But he's saying, I'm going to give generations for them before my, the, the hammer of my judgment falls. We see here God, in the midst of knowing that that judgment needs to take place for sin, we see Him having this this grace where He is slow to bring His punishment. Even in the midst of the horror of what these people are doing. Throughout the law that God gives to His people on Mount Sinai, we, we read different examples of like, don't do these things, Because these are the religious and moral practices of the people in the land that you're going to. I want you to specifically not do this because these are the reasons I'm driving them out of the land. Let me give you an example. This is from Deuteronomy 18. God says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, Never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. Now, for us, that seems like, well, of course not. But God, in outlining how you worship me versus how everyone else around you worships their gods? like There were groups of people in the land of Canaan who, in their worship of the god Molech, they would set up these giant bronze furnaces. And they would offer their firstborn child to, to be burned in this furnace. And, and I've heard accounts of like these furnaces being shaped like these giant cow gods with these arms outstretched that would be burning hot and they would place their newborn children on the burning hands of this altar furnace for their child to burn to death before sliding into the furnace and die. Like... This is how we worship these gods. And God is saying, that is not how you worship. Regardless of how anyone else around you does it, that is not how you worship your God. Do not let these people, uh, do not let your people practice fortune telling or the use of sorcery or the interpretation of omens or engage in witchcraft or cast spells or function as mediums or psychics or call forth spirits of the dead, other ways where, where um, worship was practiced and how spirits were interacted with among the people of Canaan. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. It is because the other nations have done these detestable things that the Lord your God will drive them out ahead of you. But you must be blameless before the Lord your God. We read in Leviticus, in other places. You may remember from our Kingdom and Culture series about God's very kind of clear outline of his sexual ethics. Like, all the people you don't sleep with, that list was there because these are the people that the people in Canaan are messing around with. Like, this is not the intention I have for you. The practices of the Canaanites were not to be embraced by God's people and those very practices were the reason that God was going to drive them out of the land. Now here's some details I want us to understand in these passages. Is God is very clear. He says, I will drive them out of the land. I will drive them out. We see this weird tension throughout the conquest of relying on God to use his, his people to drive Uh, the the Canaanites out of the land, and also this, we're going to go overly violent and just kill a bunch of people. This was not meant to be uh, a wholesale genocide of a people. It was to be a removal of impurity from the land by driving them out. And there are specific cities that God says, I want you to completely annihilate these people. Now, there are different reasons people understand that to be. One of the reasons is giants. We can talk about that over a coffee. That's a whole other conversation. But here's the problem that we get into with the book of Judges in the midst of this confusing and difficult conquest. Is that Judges chapter 1 opens up with kind of a summary of the conquest of kind of highlighting the different territories in the land and the different groups that went in and took them over. But what we read is that it's an incomplete conquest. They didn't complete the job. They didn't drive out all the people they were supposed to. They had victories here and here and here and here. But especially in the northern regions, they were not able to drive out the Canaanites the way that they were meant to. In some cases, it's like, well, they've got iron chariots. We can't compete with that, so we're just going to leave them alone. In other places, it's like, we're not going to drive them from the the land. We're actually going to keep them as slaves so we can benefit from having them around. But what we read in the first chapter of the book of Judges is that all the tribes get settled, but rather having control of the land, rather than fully driving out the Canaanites, they move in alongside them. And in Judges chapter 2, God shows up and speaks to the Israelites. We read this, that the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors, and I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. No peace treaties, no way of saying you guys can live here among us. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you this sets us up for the book of Judges. That the conquest isn't complete and there's consequences for that. It means that God's people, rather than being a light to the nations and how they live, will end up reflecting the people around them, will be constantly tempted by the worship practices and worshiping the gods of the nations around them. Now, God's main concern in this is in who and how worship takes place. In who's worshipped and how worship happens. It's not this out of like selfishness that God is, is saying these things, but he's actually showing that we cause ourselves harm when we worship the wrong things. The Israelites will constantly be tempted by the gods of the Canaanites. The, these, these worship practices where they worship gods of fertility to be able to have children and they worship gods of storms and rain in order to produce crops of Asherah and Baal that we read about throughout the stories. And for the Israelites, there are moments where they're like, life seems to be working out pretty good for the Canaanites. Like they've got this fertile land. They're, they seem to be pretty prosperous. I think we can fall in the same way to these same temptations. That the gods of our world are going to be a constant temptation to us. We may not be worshipping you know, at the altar of Asherah or Baal or making child sacrifices like the Canaanites. But we tend to worship at the altars of our neighbors around us. You may say, oh, well, you know, my neighbor's an atheist, he doesn't worship. I'm not kind of taking on his forms of worship. No, we, we all worship. We're, we're beings created to worship. The question is, where is that worship pointed? And regardless of whether we or our society or those around us are religious or not, there are ways where we are constantly worshiping. And we see our neighbors and our friends, and we're like, life seems to be working out pretty good for them. Worshipping the way that they are. Living their lives in devotion to the things that they are. And we can be tempted to worship the same gods. Let me give you some examples. We have a a tendency in our, our society to glorify and to worship this idea of revenge. Like I was treated wrong. And so I am going to live my life in pursuit of of getting what I feel like I need because of the wrong done to me. And that'll play out in violence. That'll play out in gossip. That'll play out in, I'm just going to kind of borrow this idea of, of karma from Eastern religions and say that that is the way to be living my life, and I will live my life devoted to that. We live our lives worshiping at the altar of money. And I will live my life hoarding and just trying to scrounge together whatever I can get for me. We live our lives at the altar of sex. And promiscuity and pornography are just expressions and symptoms of that. We worship at the altar of power. Where we say, might is right and I will take advantage of who I need to to get ahead or to show my dominance. We worship at the altar of government, where we long for these political messiahs to be the answer that we long for. And, you know, as soon as I get this party voted out, I'm going to be happy. Or as soon as the right leader gets, you know, chosen for my political party of choice and they can get in, or their policies, that is going to be my salvation or my means of freedom. Here's the thing, though. Only God can give you what you're looking for in those other things. In what we're looking for in our desire for revenge or money or sex or power or or relying on government as our Messiah, the the things we're looking for in all of those things can only truly be given to us by God. And I think what we're actually looking for aren't always bad things. Let me give you some examples. Like, In our desire for revenge, that's probably just a sinful and distorted desire for justice. And justice is only truly found in in God's view of justice because ours is, is twisted. And it's only in the ultimate coming of the Messiah and Him establishing His kingdom, whether that's in our hearts now or one day when it fully comes, that we will truly see justice. Justice comes and is found only in Christ. In our worship of money, I think really what we're seeking is provision. And and, and having a sense of like, okay, I'm looked after. I have what I need. I'm not lacking. We have the God who created the universe who, who loves to give us what we need. The provision we're seeking is found in our Creator in our desire and worship at the altar of sex, I think what we're longing for is to be intimately known. To be known for who we are at the depth of our being in a way that our nakedness never really shows. And we find the, the closen- in our closeness to God in, in a growth in closeness in relationship to Him, in a, in a healthy vulnerability in community, whether it's with a spouse or with close friendships where we can truly be known and vulnerable and honest, that what we're looking for can be found. In our desire for power, maybe we're just looking for security. You know, I don't have to be afraid because I have the strength to get myself through. When really, it's in the God of the universe that we find our ultimate security. It's in not having to fear death because of the one who conquered death that we don't need to be seeking power and dominance. And ultimately, rather than in Seeing government figures as our Messiahs and Savior, salvation and freedom only comes by grace through Christ. When we worship all these other gods, if we're looking for these things somewhere else, it's going to catch up with us. The the translation I'm using of this passage, these gods will be a temptation to you, it's probably better translated, these gods will be a snare to you. They will trap you. You will get caught into this cycle of thinking what I'm looking for is going to be found there. That just the more I dive into finding my hope in politics, the more I'm sucked into that world and then my whole life is lived through the lens of of politics. And I'm caught in that cycle. The more I live my life bitter and seeking revenge, the more and more I'm bent out of shape and caught in that cycle of seeking revenge rather than the true justice of God found in Christ. The more I seek to find intimacy in sexuality or pornography, the more I find myself in that place, the more of a snare it becomes and I can't find my way out. The worst of the Israelites that we read in Judges comes out as they turn from God to worship in the way of the people around them. Seeking perhaps legitimate things, but in the wrong ways, and it snares them. It traps them into a life of falling deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and running further and further and further from God to the point where The tail end of Judges is like some of the darkest chapters in the Bible. Just wait till we get there. Judges shows us the extent of human sinfulness. And yet it shows us the depth of God's faithfulness. Because in the midst of this cycle, in the midst of getting trapped and ensnared and following down this vicious circle, God remains faithful to his people. We read time after time, he sends judges. Time after time, he liberates his people. And I think you and I need to be reminded that even in our entrapment to sin, even when our eyes wander to worship in other ways, we have a God who's still pursuing us. A God who's still faithful. A God who raised up the perfect judge and rescuer of his people in Jesus. Who's actually the one who can set us free who's actually the one who can provide for us the things that we need, and who is actually the one who is the way out of these vicious spirals into the entrapment that we find in worshiping other things. Ultimately, Judges reminds us that we need Jesus. That's what it's about. That's what it's going to be about every week. And as we see and read ourselves in this book, we're going to be reminded how we need Jesus. As we read about the stories of the Israelites in this book, we're going to be reminded how much they need Jesus. He's our hope. He's the one we look to. He's the one that we worship. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the solution. And in the midst of us and our temptation to worship the other gods of this world, you are the God who pursues us. You are the God who sacrifices Himself rather than demanding these brutal sacrifices from His people. You are the one that rather than trapping and ensnaring us, You are the one who sets us free. So Christ, as we begin this journey together of reading Your Word and reading some difficult parts, may we be reminded that in the midst of our fallenness and our brokenness, You are the God who pursues us. Would you rule in our hearts? Would you be the king that we need? It's in your name we pray.